Gospel of John, my namesake. John the, you know, John the Evangelist or John the Apostle, not John Verdi. John the. <laughs> chapter 9, we're going to look at verses 35 to 41. This is the conclusion of chapter 9. Jesus, um, when he heals the blind man. And chapter 9 of John's Gospel is a section of Scripture where we see not only God's compassion on healing the physically blind eyes of a man, but his spiritual eyes as well. And that's the climax of, of course, chapter 9. And one of the amazing things we see as we read this chapter is the blind man's growing faith. His faith was growing in the midst of opposition from the Jewish leaders. However, the most amazing thing was this man's ultimate sight, the understanding and belief in Jesus, which was, listen to this carefully, initiated by Jesus. Jesus opened his physical eyes. Jesus did it. Man was not looking for it. And Jesus opened his spiritual eyes. Jesus initiates. And the result was this man's faith in the Son of God. This is the climax of the chapter. If you read the chapter 9, we did it in three parts. Um, It was grace through faith that saved this man. And it was this, this not of himself. It was the gift of God. This man will never boast in heaven. He's going to give all the glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. On the other hand, we see the opposite happening with many of the Jewish leaders. Instead of rejoicing in the fact that God healed this poor blind beggar, they opposed and ridiculed him and Jesus. So let us heed the invitation to come to Christ for spiritual sight. And the warning of judgment, which is permanent blindness if we reject Christ. By the way, this is this whole section of John chapter 9, really really the whole gospel of John, if you want to get technical, the whole Bible, is not only for unbelievers, but for believers as well. So let's read our text. John chapter 9, verses 35 through 41. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Let us pray. Father, open up our eyes as we look into your eternal word. Grant those who do not know you the sight of salvation found in your son, Jesus Christ. And to those of us who do know you, grant us the sight in blind spots of our lives that we may grow and become more like Jesus. In, him, in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Spiritual blindness is spoken of symbolically throughout scripture. It is symbolic of a man's lack of ability of understanding God's will or his divine truth. That's what really spiritual blindness is. Israel was God's chosen people. And, and for the most part failed to recognize their Messiah due to their blindness. Both Isaiah and Jeremiah 
refer to Israel as spiritually blind. And when we come to the New Testament, we read about Jesus denouncing the leaders constantly. He denounced the Israel leaders as blind guides, blind men. And like their leaders, most of Israel lacked spiritual understanding. However, lack of spiritual understanding was not limited to Israel alone, but to the Gentiles as well. As a matter of fact, all of humanity, apart from God lifting the veil of blindness, is in darkness. Paul the Apostle was sent to the Gentile nation to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light. We see that in Acts 26, verse 18. He tells the Ephesians that they, meaning the Gentiles, are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their hearts. And if any of us who claim to be Christians think that this does not apply to us, we need to think again. For even in the book of Revelation, the church is warned by Christ. Revelation 3.17, if we can get it up there. Jesus tells the Laodicean church, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Let us beware, lest our light be darkness. Now, there are people who are blind because of ignorance. And then there are people who are blind willfully. But we need to be careful of judging someone and saying they are blind when God really may be drawing them to himself. Up until the healed blind beggar in our text tonight professed faith in Jesus Christ, he was spiritually blind up to the point where we're going to look at tonight. However, when Jesus opened his physical eyes, even though he was still spiritually blind, God began to draw him. And as you read through the chapter, you see the progression of his faith growing and growing and growing. The veil was beginning to be removed. But then there are those who are willfully blind, like the Pharisees were. And we see that many many people today who are willfully blind. I like I'm going to read a little story from Dr. Gary Berg, who gives an example about an Episcopal bishop from Newark, New Jersey, who was a prolific writer who basically tears apart the beliefs of the church. And this is an Episcopal bishop. This minister was willfully blind. Listen to some of his heretical teachings. He He admits to some of these teachings in his books. He called for the church to recognize same sex marriage and homosexual ordination. He claims Paul the Apostle was gay. He says that the virgin birth was a tactic to cover up Jesus' illegitimacy and that Jesus may have been married to Mary Magdalene. He also argues that the worldview of Christianity is outdated and that all theism and supernatural assumptions must go if the church is going to speak to a modern world. Other religions have died and Christianity is simply the next system on the chopping block. He also says that he would choose to loathe rather than to worship a deity who required the sacrifice of his son. Now here's an educated, ordained theologian who knows the Bible well and understands the basic tenets of Orthodox Christianity and plainly admits from the view of traditional Christianity that what he writes is heresy. This is willful blindness. Listen, Jesus gives us light. And when he gives us light, 
of his glorious gospels, and if we reject it, it's willful blindness. And we see a lot of that today. And here's my proposition to you tonight as we begin our text. Only Jesus, only Jesus can give us spiritual sight. But to reject his light results in permanent blindness. And in our final part of the story, the healing of the blind man, we see spiritual sight on the part of the blind man and spiritual blindness on the part of the Pharisees. You see the two parts. John uses a lot of contrast through his gospel. And there are three points we're going to look at in this conclusion of the healing of the blind man. First one is Christ's initiative. Second one is Christ's judgment. And the third one is Christ's pronouncement. So let's look at the first one. Christ's initiative. It is God who seeks us. God who finds us. God who reveals himself to us. And ultimately it is God who saves us. Now we clearly see this with the blind man who was born blind. The one that Christ healed. Verse 30. 5 to 38 again. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, underline that, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered and said, he answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Now, Sonship Ministries is reformed in its theology. And we never make an excuse for that. Reformed theology is solidly based on the Bible itself. And one of the tenets of reformed theology is God elects the sinner for salvation. And we wholeheartedly uh, embrace that here at Sonship. And the reason why we believe this is because we believe the scripture teaches this. We believe that God takes the initiative in salvation. We believe if he didn't, no one would be saved. We certainly would not be seeking him. Romans 3 verses 10 to 12 makes that perfectly clear. Can we get that up there? As it is written. Now listen. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. And if the father didn't take the initiative in drawing us to his son, no one would come. And John 6.44 makes that abundantly clear. Jesus said, no one, underline that, can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus also told the disciples, he said, you didn't choose me. But I chose you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. So it is God who gives the sinner the desire and the inclination to come to him and the ability and the ability to place his trust in Christ. This does not mean, and here's where the paradox comes in, this does not mean that man has no responsibility. Man still needs to repent and place his faith in Christ. And all that God appoints to eternal life will Repent and place his trust in Christ. And those who have not been appointed to eternal life will continue to reject the offer of eternal life and end up in eternal hell. They are still responsible for their sins. They are still getting what they deserve. The sinner God calls to himself is getting what he doesn't deserve, eternal life. We're getting what 
Those who, have, who are Christians are getting what we don't deserve. The one who doesn't repent is getting what he deserves. So God is always just. And we always have to remember. And the bottom line is this. God is sovereign in salvation, and yet man is still responsible. You can't reconcile the two, but the Bible teaches both of them. So, you know, to try to understand that in its full, you can't. Just like you can't understand the incarnation. You can't understand, I can't understand, I can't wrap around my mind how Christ is 100% God, not 50%. 100% God and 100% man. But the Bible teaches it so we we believe it. So this is what is happening to the blind man. God healed him and began to draw him. And at this point in our text tonight, we see the climax of this drawing, which ends up in the opening of the man's spiritual eyes. And as I, you know, the more I read about this blind man, he, he was just wonderful. I want to meet him when I go to heaven. I really do. And I said that the last time. You said the same thing. You will. That's right. We will. We will. So the first thing we see in God's initiative in salvation is Christ seeks us and finds us. Verse 35 again. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? It's God who seeks the sinner. It is God who finds the sinner. God, if you're a Christian, God sought you out and God found you. We are told this was Jesus' mission on earth in Luke's gospel, the 19th chapter, in the 10th verse. Jesus said, for the Son of Man came to what? Seek and save the lost. So it is God who seeks us, and it is God who finds us. Jesus tells a parable about a lost sheep, which illustrates this superbly in both Matthew and Luke's gospel. Let's look at Luke's account. Luke 15, chapter 1 through 7. Can we get that up there? Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulder, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Jesus looked for him. The illustration was the shepherd looked for the sheep and found them. Christ looks for sinners and finds them. We often hear Christians, and I'm sure you've heard this before, saying, I found God or I found Jesus. But that's really inaccurate. Because God the Father and God the Son, not lost. We're the ones who are lost. We were. And all of humanity is. It is God who seeks us and finds us. Jesus not only sought after the man and found him, but then he invites him to believe. Jesus invites us. How did he invite him? He invited him to believe what they question, which leads us, which, which will lead this teachable, healed, blind man into the highest truth. Verse 35, he says to him, Do you believe in the Son of Man? 
The title Son of Man is a messianic term and is a theme in John's Gospel as the incarnate revelation of God who gave his life for the world. And Jesus also used the pronoun you, emphasizing the man's need to respond. He, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? It's not to be understood, do you believe that the Son of Man exists? No, that wasn't what he was saying. Jesus, no doubt, was not looking for a mental assent in believing. Nor was he inviting the man to believe in him just as a miracle worker. But rather, he was inviting the man to believe in him as Messiah, Lord and Savior. He was asking the man to put his faith and trust in him. Now, I'm going to give you, I'm going to talk about this word belief because I think it, it, it's really important to understand this because we come across a lot of people today who say they believe in Jesus but are really not they don't really have the biblical belief in Jesus. Now, belief, believe comes from the Greek word pistero and means to believe, but it means more than an intellectual understanding. Okay, so follow me here. It's very important. The abridged version of Kittle's Theological Dictionary of the New Testament says, pistero denotes reliance, it, it denotes trust, and denotes belief. It also means to entrust or to commit oneself. According to Lo Nida's Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament, it means to believe something to be true and hence worthy of being trusted. They also say it means to believe to the extent, and this is important, of complete trust and reliance. And in this context, they describe it as to believe the good news about Jesus Christ to become a follower, to be a believer, to be a Christian, Christian faith. Now, the reason why... I gave you these definitions of the word believe from a couple of Greek dictionaries is so that you and I can understand that Jesus wasn't calling this healed blind beggar to easy believism. Over the years, I cannot tell you how many people I've met and spoke with who say they believe in Jesus, but they would not know Jesus if they fell over him. They would not know Jesus if they met him face to face. There is no repentance in their lives. They act like the world because they are part of the world system. There is no indication that all that they are disciples of Christ. They never picked up their cross and followed Jesus. Their speech is the same. Their lives are the same. But they claim to be Christians. They may have responded to an altar call, which we are not against here at Sonship, but we realize that God doesn't really need an altar call to save. So these people that claim to believe in Jesus but don't have a shred of evidence that identifies them as genuine Christians are in reality not real Christians. Genuine belief in Christ results in a genuine change of life. Jesus was inviting this man to believe him with his whole life. And that's what the word is. And that's why we look at words. Because words really give the true meaning of the text. He was inviting him to trust him with his whole life. To the very one who was sent by the Father to redeem mankind back to himself. We re- Next thing is we respond with inquiry. And this blind beggar responded immediately with inquiry. In the time when God is drawing us to himself, sometimes we respond with questions. Anyone who is being drawn to God's son will have sincere questions. Because, guess what? They want to know the truth. Questions that want direction to get to Christ or grow in Christ 
are essential in the Christian life. And the response of this blind man, although it is in question form, was a response of faith that desired direction to put that faith in the Son of God. And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? In other words, if you show me him, I'll believe in him. If you remember when Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, bound in chains in the Philippian prison, when suddenly there was an earthquake and the jail doors opened and the chains fell off, and the jailer realized that what had happened, that he was about to kill himself because anyone who was a prisoner uh, that escaped would face uh, humiliation and a painful execution if you were the jailer and you had a prisoner escape, that was, you, you might as well just kill yourself. Because that's what was going to happen to him. But Paul yelled out for him, do not harm yourself. And the jailer ran and fell at Paul and Silas' feet trembling and asked the infamous question, Sir, what must I do to be saved? And even though it was different situations, both the blind man and the jailer had questions that needed answers, which would lead them to Christ. And with that sincere question, Christ answers him by revealing himself to him of who he was. The one he believed in, that you see, the blind man believed that he was a prophet. But this, the one that he thought was a prophet was about to open his spiritual eyes and would see that the very one he was speaking to was much more than a prophet, but God incarnate. His heart was divinely prepared. And in verse 37, Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. It is Christ who reveals himself to us. In John chapter 4, he revealed himself to the Samaritan woman who was talking about the coming Messiah. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Jesus revealed himself to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus when when, uh, Jesus broke bread and disappeared from their sight and they realized it was Jesus. Today his Holy Holy Spirit uh, reveals Jesus to us in our hearts through the written word. And when Christ revealed himself, To the blind man, how did he respond? He responded in faith. Even though salvation is divinely initiated, it is never apart from a response of faith. It is necessary for a sinner to repent and believe the gospel. And those who God calls will respond with a genuine repentance and faith. They will. God is calling someone to salvation He put faith in their hearts and they're going to respond in faith and repentance. Verse 38. And that's just what the blind man did. And verse 38 says, He believed and he worshipped Jesus. God was drawing him. And when it was revealed to him who Jesus was, he instantaneously believed. When God, when Christ reveals himself to us, we respond in faith. There were two people who were instrumental in my coming to faith in Christ. First one was my friend Mario Rotante, and the second one was Kathy Gallica. Mario was a good friend of mine, played in bands together, we grew up together, and I knew him from childhood. Before I came to faith in Christ, I was weighed down with sin and tremendous guilt. And all I wanted to find was peace, peace and forgiveness. That's all I wanted to find. So what did I do? I became more religious. But... That didn't bring assurance of the truth in any stretch of the imagination. But my heart was being prepared by God. And when Mario, my friend, who was recently saved, told me the gospel, I received it gladly. And then Kathy, my other friend, she 
spoke to me about believing in Christ and reinforced it. Kathy also mentored me as a young believer, which I am eternally grateful for, because I grew my first year from her a lot. And the point is, I was prepared in my heart when I heard the truth, when Christ was revealed to me, I did not even have to think about it. I responded in faith immediately, just like the blind man. God was preparing him. He healed him physically, and then he went through opposition, and he just kept saying, it's this man named Jesus that healed me. And even though the, the, the Jewish leaders were opposing him, he was still growing in his faith until Jesus revealed himself to him, and he instantaneously believed. Now, it doesn't always happen that exact way. Sometimes God starts drawing a person, and you might share the gospel, your testimony with them, but they are still not at the point of receiving Christ. However, the seed was planted and begins to grow up until the point where they are ready to receive Christ. And the next time you or someone else shares the gospel with them, they immediately say yes to the gospel message. The veil is removed, spiritual darkness is removed, and they see who Jesus is clearly. And that's precisely what happened to this blind man. And the result of his seeing Jesus, the Messiah, and believing in him was worship. When we come to a genuine trust in Christ, the result is always worship. We respond in worship. When I believed the truth and I was saved, I worshipped, and many times with tears. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, Britain's greatest preacher, said, as he was preaching on this very passage, he said this, speaking of the blind man, he said he acted as a believer, for he worshipped him. This proves how his faith had grown. I should ask like... I should like to ask you who are the people of God when you are the happiest. I think you will agree with me what I am going to say. But if you don't, it will still be just as true to me. My happiest moments are when I am worshiping God, really adoring the Lord Jesus Christ, and having fellowship with the ever-blessed Spirit. In that worship, I forget the cares of the church and everything else. And to me, it is the nearest approach to what will be in heaven where day without night they offer perpetual adoration unto him that sits on the throne and unto the Lamb. Therefore, what a memorable moment it was for this man when he worshipped Christ. I love that. I love, nobody could say it like Spurgeon. Nobody. Do you love to worship God? If you're genuine with your answer yes, then you must be a genuine Christian. No man can truly worship God the Father and His Son Jesus Christ and not be a Christian. It's just, it doesn't happen. If you're truly a Christian, you truly worship. If I work out, what's the result? Muscle tone. If I clean my house, the result is a clean house. If I tune on my car's engine, the result is a smooth running engine. If Christ reveals Himself to me and I put my trust in Him, the result is worship. Second point is Christ's judgment. Anyone who receives his offer of salvation receives spiritual sight. But whoever rejects Christ's offer of salvation receives his judgment. Verse 39. Jesus said, For judgment I came into the world, into this this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Now this is not a contradiction to the verses that say Jesus did not come to judge the world, 
but that the world might be safe through him. John 3.17 For though Jesus' main purpose was to save lost sinners, to reject his gospel of grace, the sinner is left with judgment. John 3.18 There is a great contrast Jesus uses here. The spiritually blind who recognize their blindness will be given an opportunity to see. But those who are spiritually blind and deny it, those who think they see, will never see. The Pharisees were so confident that they could see, that, that they were so confident that they were in God's will, that they rejected any contrary suggestions. The true light, the true light revelation was standing right before them. They were looking right at him. They were seeing all the miracles, hearing all the, 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 the words that he spoke. And they could not see it. Spiritual pride, that's what it was. Spiritual pride. It was spiritual blindness. Christ's judgment is simple. Let me make it simple for you. If you admit you're spiritually blind, that is, you recognize and admit your need of a Savior, you'll be made to see. You will see Jesus is the only one who can save you. You will see your need to repent and trust in Christ. Number two, if you're spiritually blind and deny it, that is, you willfully deny your need of a Savior, you willfully denied your need to repent and trust in Christ, you remain blind and you remain in your state of sin. Dr. Kent Hughes said, Christ came to earth so that those who think they have spiritual insight may be shown to be blind. And those who do not suppose they have this spiritual insight may see. His whole argument centered around a person's sense of need. If someone felt no need, he would not see. But those who knew they were blind were the ones who, could made, who would be made to see. And I'm going to read a short article from today in the Word. And it illustrates precisely the destiny of the spiritual blind. On November 30th, 1991, fierce winds from a freakish dust storm triggered a massive freeway pileup along Interstate 5 near Colinga, California. At least 14 people died and dozens more were injured as topsoil whipped by 50 mile per hour winds reduced visibility to zero. The afternoon holocaust left a three mile trail of twisted and burning vehicles. Some stacked up on top of one another, 100 yards off the side of the freeway. Unable to see their way, dozens of motorists drove blindly ahead into disaster. This is what happens to people who are spiritually blind. They reject Christ and his gospel and are driving blindly into disaster. On the contrary, those who cry out to the Lord for sight will find the blinders removed. Like the blind person who can see now, maybe because of an operation or divine healing, and is seeing various colors, you know, if a blind person by an operation or, you know, maybe Christ divinely healed them, you know, for the first time they're seeing um, colors on flowers, they're seeing the ocean, the stars, the moon. The spiritually healed will experience something of the same but in a spiritual sense, they'll experience grace, mercy, love, and forgiveness. <clears throat> Third and final point of this passage is Christ's pronouncement. Hard-hearted unbelief in Christ results in one thing. Your sin remains. 
The Pharisees were around when Jesus found the blind man. Okay, when he was talking to the blind man, they were standing around listening. And as they were listening, they answered in anger. In verse 40, they said, oh, are we also blind? In other words, Jesus, you can't possibly be suggesting that we're blind like the common people. After all, we're the spiritual leaders of Israel. We know the law. We're experts in the law. And we're also devout followers of Noah. Or, excuse me, Moses. Once again, it was spiritual pride that blinded them. And Jesus' pronouncement to the willfully blind is found in verse 41. Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. And this is one of the saddest comments in the Bible because his pronouncements on them is the ultimate blindness. Their guilt remains. There's nothing left for them. When a person rejects Jesus Christ, there is absolutely nothing left. Nothing. John Calvin said, But they who, insensible to their diseases, despise the grace of God, are incurable. Paul told the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 4.4, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. See, we have two groups here in chapter 9. First one, that's the blind man. They admit they are blind and cried. Well, he admitted that he was blind and cried out for mercy. And he saw the glorious light. And he will see it in heaven too. The second group is the ones who didn't admit their blindness. The Pharisees. They don't need Christ. And therefore will die in their sins and spend eternity in the darkness in hell. There's much more we can expound on this text. But we will close with a few more applications. Now it's really easy. And I know as you read this as a Christian. It's really easy to think that this doesn't apply to me because I'm a Christian, I know God, you know, I'm not blind. I'm born again, I'm filled with the Spirit. And certainly that can be true. However, a Christian can easily be exposed to blindness. It is possible for a Christian to have blind areas of our lives. As a matter of fact, as a matter of fact, and hear me, every one of us has blind spots. Every single one of us. And if we fail to admit that, then our growth as Christians will be stunted. We will also incur the Lord's discipline because the Lord loves us deeply and desires us to grow. But with blind areas unchecked, He can't grow. I have blind spots in my life. And I'm painfully aware of them more than I want to admit. And I have a wife who is not shy to show me them But I'm grateful for that. I am grateful for that. Pastors have blind spots. I'm reading a book my wife gave to Pastor Brian and myself. It's a well-respected author. Dr. Paul Tripp wrote the book, and it's called Dangerous Calling. It's for more or less for pastors. And this this book is basically about the frequent pitfalls that can easily blind the pastor. It confronts the unique challenges of pastoral ministry. And as I was reading the book, I can't tell you how deeply convicted I was and still am. Light began passing the darkness of the blind areas of my life as I was reading this book. Jesus is far from finished with me. 
I can assure you of that. You have two pastors here and an elder that admit blind areas in our lives. And you can help us by praying for us. And I'd like to conclude with Dr. Kent Yu's comments. I thought this was superb. So he he could say it better than I could say it. It's one thing you learn uh, when you take courses on preaching. If somebody, you, you, you should quote because sometimes they say it better than you could say it. And Dr. Kent uses truly, he's, he's a master at this. And I think this is going to tie the sermon together in a nice, neat package. Possibly the change that Christ initially brought to our lives was quite dramatic, too. Evidenced perhaps by a changed, by changed habits and language. But it is also possible that with the change came an unhealthy focus on our progress. And that ensuing pride began to dull us to the spiritual realities. Darkness then flourished within. It is possible to come to know Christ, but to effectively seal ourselves from the light. As with the Pharisees, our pride invisible change can dull us to an aggressive darkness of our hearts. The self-satisfied attitude of we see is deadly. We, com- we comfort ourselves in our ability to see the sin of the world. We see that Jesus Christ is the answer. We see moral problems. We see the ethical answers. We focus on what we think we see, but never really see in our, into our hearts. It is so easy to focus on our piety or the changes in our habits and speech, but while we are congratulating ourselves, we also allow evil to spread unrestricted into our souls. The self-satisfied attitude of we see, I read that already, I'm, I'm reading from a little, um, little photo, photo and it's, sometimes it's hard to see it, um, so just give me a second. The ground of seeing and spiritual growth is the awareness of how dark our hearts are and how desperately we need Christ. When our Lord, in his opening words in the Sermon on the Mount, said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those who realize they have nothing within themselves to to commend them to God, he revealed not only what is required to to see the kingdom of God, but to keep growing and seeing. It is the blind beggars who keep on seeing. Alexander White, that great preacher of of a century ago, ago, was in his study one day when a friend came in to tell him about an evangelist who had come to Edinburgh and was criticizing the local ministers. The man told Dr. White that the preacher had said Dr. Wood Wilson was not a Christian. When White heard that, he leaped out of his chair and said, That rascal! Dr. Wilson, not a converted man? Then the friend said, and that is not all. He said, you are, I'm sorry. He said, you are not converted either. At that, White stopped short, sat back in his chair, and put his face in his hands. After a long silence, he said, leave me, friend, leave me. I must examine my heart. He was poor in spirit. Oh, how happy are those who realize that within themselves there is nothing to commend them to God. Theirs is the kingdom of God. How happy 
They are because their emptiness becomes an occasion for his fullness. Oh, how happy are those who mourn over their sins and the sins of others, for they will be comforted. Oh, how happy are the meek, those who allow others to assert that they are poor sinners. It's okay to admit we have blind spots. But we've got to let God expose them. If you want to see, really see, admit you're blind and Jesus will open your eyes. If you refuse to admit your lack of sight, Jesus really will do nothing for you. I hope you agree with me. Jesus is the pivotal point of human destiny. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you and praise you that Christ came to seek and save the lost. Christ came to open our eyes. And many of us here have had our eyes open concerning salvation. But God, we need to constantly have the blind spots of our lives revealed. Only you can do that. And there are some, God, that may be here that never knew you at all. They are blind to the fact that you are Lord, you are Savior, you are Redeemer. I pray, Father, lift the veil of darkness before it is too late. Only you can do that, God. Only you can open up the blind eyes of a sinner. Do it, Lord, in Christ's precious name. Amen.